Good evening, everyone. Our second Bible reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 27, verse 11 to 26. Um, I've got that on page 1041. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave not an answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to one single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barnabas. Barabbas. (laughs) So when the crowd had gathered... Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Well, it's um, really encouraging and challenging to hear from Ian. Uh, Three-hour service in Turkey. Maybe that's our new challenge to us. Let's, let's aim for that one. Then. No, we won't. Um, but hopefully, as we've been looking over Matthew over the last uh, two months or so, you've been seeing the richness of the cross as we come closer and closer to the cross. And today we get to the cross. So let's uh, turn again to God and ask for his help. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we reflect on this passage that you might help us see the richness of the cross and the wonder of what Christ went to the cross, what he did for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you would know that on Friday, I went to a graduation ceremony and I graduated from a Master's of Arts in Theology, which has taken me seven years to complete. That's how slow I am. It's very slow. But by far, my best subject while doing this course was what I did two years ago. And it was a study tour to Greece and Turkey, my best result by far. (laughs) Better than all the other essays and all that stuff. But anyway, it was a wonderful study tour where we followed the footsteps of the Apostle Paul through parts of Greece and also Turkey. And it was a brilliant trip because there's nothing like it, not just reading from the pages of Scripture of Paul preaching to the Athenians at Mars Hill. But we actually went there. This is me on Mars Hill. Someone photobombed. That's my friend anyway. 
Uh, but this is a picture of Mars Hill. It's just wonderful to be at that place, not just reading from the pages of Scripture uh, where Paul was making his tent, his tent-making business in Corinth. But we went there, and perhaps these were the shops that Paul worked from. Not just reading of how Paul was dragged from the marketplace to the theatre in Ephesus, but going to that very theatre where Paul was, walking those very stone roads. Now, some of you might be wondering, where is all this going? Well, nowhere really. I, I thought I'd just show you some photos and reminisce a bit on that very hard life I had back then, difficult, hard, toiling study tour. But of course, that's not true. What I'm trying to show you is that there is something to seeing and smelling and walking that brings alive the pages of Scripture. And in a sense, that's what I want us all to do tonight, this evening, as though you were there that first Good Friday morning, walking the streets of Jerusalem. Now, of course, this evening we can't be there, but I'd like us all to consider being there in Jerusalem that very first Good Friday morning. We can hear the hustle and bustle of life in Jerusalem. We can smell the dust-filled air as thousands of pilgrims come to Jerusalem for the annual Passover festival. And we can see what took place that first Good Friday Easter. But this morning, you're waking up, imagine this, you're waking up not as someone who will work in the fields, harvesting the wheat, not as the blacksmith melting his steel or as the baker baking his bread. No, this morning, you wake up in chains, in shackles, in prison. You wake up too depressed to smell the flowers of spring. You wake up too anxious to feel any joy. You wake up too tired. You couldn't really sleep the night before. And you wake up terrified because today is the day of your execution. And so imagine for a moment that you are the same Barabbas in our reading. You've been put in prison You've been found guilty by Roman court along with two others. And your offence, your crime, well, you're the ringleader of a revolution against Rome. You're a rebel and you've engaged in guerrilla action and you're notorious and you know it. And your penalty, well, it is execution by crucifixion. And so what would you be thinking this morning? Be there in that place, what would you be thinking? Well, you're guilty, and you know it. You're done for, and you know it. How will you be feeling this morning? Well, your time has come. You're like a criminal on death row. Only difference is that you know that your time is up, and it is today. And as you're inside that cold prison walls, you peer outside the cold prison bars, you can just see Mount Golgotha. You see the soldiers preparing for the crucifixion, three crosses being prepared, and you know one of those crosses is for you. But then this morning, there's a sense of hysteria and frenzy outside. You hear jeering and sneering and cheering, and you're not quite sure what's going on outside. So what's happening? Now, you don't really know because... You're in your prison cell. You don't know what order ruckus is about. But we know from our passage what was happening outside. 
There was a man by the name of Jesus. He was being tried by Pilate, the governor of the region. Pilate, he's a guy who had no sympathy for the Jews. He could see right through them. They've come up with these trumped-up charges against Jesus. And his crime? Well, his crime was that he was, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate, you see, he was a clever man. He knew that they were doing this really just out of envy. Jesus is innocent. Pilate knew it. But of course, you don't know what's happening. You're inside prison. You're locked inside. But then the crowd, they get louder and louder, noisier and noisier. Now, you can't really make out what the shouting is all about. But then you listen intently. And what do you hear? Well, it sounds like they're shouting what sounds to be like your name. Barabbas. And then you hear them shout these awful words. Crucify him. Crucify him. Now what would you be thinking at that point? Well, if me, my heart will be trembling in anguish and agony. My time has come and has come to this. Now that's all you know. That's all you can gather from inside the prison walls, their muffled shouting. But now let's step outside the prison walls. What was really happening outside? What were they shouting about? Well, Pilate, he brought Jesus out and he presents him to the crowd. And rather than do what was right and declare this man is innocent, which he was, and to let him off, even his wife warned him, don't have anything to do with him. Pilate instead thought, well, we've got this tradition We'll grant a Passover amnesty to some prisoner. I'll release a prisoner for you. Maybe the crowd will want this Jesus released. Now, with some audacity, Pilate goes to the crowd, thinking that he holds the life of Jesus in his hands. He goes to the crowd. Who do you want released today? There's a guy in prison. He's a thief, a rebel, a murderer, Barabbas. Or do you want this guy here? This guy I've found nothing wrong with. And so who will it be? Who will you choose today? Barabbas or Jesus, your Messiah? Well, the crowd, perhaps it was mob psychology, or perhaps they, they just didn't care much about Jesus. They heard about the stuff he did up in Galilee. But Barabbas, though he's a murderer, though he's a, he, he's a murderer, but he's a hero. He's a freedom fighter. He's fighting against Rome for us. And our leaders, we see the chief priests, the priests, they're all telling us to ask for Barabbas. And so, to some shock surprise of Pilate, they screamed out, Barabbas, we want Barabbas. Pilate was confused, baffled. What about this Jesus? He's done nothing wrong. What do you want me to do with this Jesus? They screamed out, crucify him, crucify him. Now, it's remarkable that the Jews would cry out such awful words. For the crucifixion, you see, was a Roman punishment, and it was abhorrent to the Jews. But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Crucify him! And so what did Pilate do? Well, if he was a man of justice, if he was a man of honour, or a man who just listened to his wife, he would have done the right thing. But Pilate was a coward, afraid that a riot would start. What did he do? What was his verdict? 
he washed his hands in front of them all, and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. This man here is your responsibility. I mean, the governor of the land left the governing to the people. But the crowd, they didn't care. And with their awfully incriminating words, they say, well, let his blood be on us and our children. I mean, they were even proud of their guilt. Now, of course, you're Barabbas. You don't know that all of this was happening. You're still in your prison cell. You're hearing a lot of shouting. And it appears all that you could make out was that they want you crucified. And then suddenly you start hearing footsteps. And the footsteps are getting louder. And you know they're the footsteps of the guard. They're coming for you. You hear the keys clanging. What are you thinking at this moment? Well, maybe... Your heart is beating faster and faster. Beads of sweat dripping from your face because you know this is it. And so you push yourself to the corner of the cell. You hope with all hopes to avoid the unavoidable. The prison door squeaks open. And what did the guards do? They didn't grab you ruthlessly like how they dragged out those two other inmates. They unlock you. They take off your chains. They take off your shackles. You're a free man. You're free to go. Now, what would you be feeling now? What would you be thinking? I mean, what's going on here? Has a mistake been made? I thought that cross was for me. And so you walk outside, confused, disorientated, dumbfounded, and now that muffled shouting you were hearing inside the cell is so much clearer now. The people, they were cheering for you, Barabbas, Barabbas, we want Barabbas. And so what are you thinking? Relieved? Overjoyed? Elated? This is my day. God has had mercy on me this day. I'm a free man. But then you look over and you see the man Jesus. He's being whipped. They're flogging him. Flesh is being ripped off with each flogging, blood everywhere, and it's just unbearable to watch. They're taunting him, they're mocking him as the king of the Jews, treating him like rubbish. They're treating this guy worse than they treated you. And what do you do? But then it became clear. He is going to be crucified. Then they made him carry that cross that was meant to be for you. They paraded him down the streets of Jerusalem until they reached outside the city walls. He carried the cross that was meant to be for you. Now, by this point, you're a free man, so what do you do? You follow him, and there you see the soldiers nailing him to the cross that was meant to be for you. With each swing of the hammer, you look at your wrist. That could have been me. Then they hoisted him up on the cross between the two other criminals. Now, what might you be thinking now? You stand there, a free man, but there on the cross was one who took your place. His life was exchanged for yours. You know you're guilty. You know you deserve to be up there on the cross, but he's there instead of you. How would you be feeling at that point? Relief or guilt? Joy or burden? Amazement or shame? 
Well, that's our passage told through the eyes of Barabbas. But of course, we don't actually know what Barabbas was thinking or feeling that morning. It was actually all made up. It's not recorded down for us. We don't know what he saw or what he heard that morning. We don't even know whether those two other criminals were his co-rebels. But what we do know from this passage, what we do know was that there was this great exchange. There was this substitution. An innocent man, Jesus Christ, was tortured, brutalized, crucified in place of a guilty man. The innocent suffers, the guilty walks free. The king stands in substitute, the innocent for the guilty, and the guilty for the innocent. Barabbas for Christ, and Christ for Barabbas. But as we look at this story, that's all well and good for Barabbas, but what does it have to do with me today? What does it have to do with us today? We see, here comes the great and profound and wonderful message of the gospel, what we've been seeing week after week in the greatest travesty in human history, the substitution between this innocent Jesus Christ and guilty Barabbas, that's in fact an illustration, a pointer, an image of the greatest substitution that happened that first Good Friday between innocent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and guilty sinners, God offenders, rebels against the king of the universe. People, the Bible tells us, just like you and me. People who have either, either ignored God or we shake our puny fists at God and we say, this is my life, stay away, I don't need your concern, leave me alone. And the truth is, we'll find this hard to believe if it's our first time hearing it. We're no better than Barabbas. We're no better than Barabbas. An Australian songwriter, he describes it this way. So call me Barabbas, because that's who I am. All I deserve has been given to him. The guilty set free, the innocent must die. A lifetime of sin is all that I know. I should have been killed, but Jesus let me go. And I can't forget the death of that man. It set free Barabbas, and that's who I am. You see, this story is not just a story. It is to teach us something big, something cosmic, a big cosmic substitution. And so you see, we're also in trouble. In fact, the penalty for this rebellion against God is far worse, far more terrifying, far more horrifying than what Barabbas had to face. Because such people will face a godless eternity, an eternity separated from the God who's given us life, separated from all that is good and pure and holy and loving and joyful, separated from all the things we all enjoy now in this life. But you see, the great substitution of the gospel is that Christ has come for us. And that's what we've been committing to memory this month. He was pierced for our transgressions. We're not pierced, but he was pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and not us. You see, Jesus has come to take the place for rebels like us. He has come to do for me what he did for Barabbas. 
And so you see, this really comes to the heart of what Christianity is about. Our eternal destiny, your eternal destiny in a thousand years, where will you be? Well, where you will be does not depend on whether you live a good life now or not. Where you will be in a thousand years does not depend on whether you're healthy or not. It does not depend on whether you're successful or not. It does not depend on whether you're likable or not. It doesn't even depend on whether you're Presbyterian or not. None of that will help. You see, this passage makes clear to us that our eternal destiny, where we will be in a thousand years, depends on where we stand in this story. Are we on the cross like the two criminals next to Jesus, getting what we deserve, a godless eternity? Or are we off the cross like Barabbas, Jesus hangs, I walk. Jesus dies and I live and I will never face a godless eternity. And so tonight, where do you stand? Many of you have been coming along to church for quite a while, some of you for the first time today. Many of you come weekly quite diligently. Many of you come along to our growth groups Many of you even hang around to crazier hours of Sunday night and go out for dinner at Box Hill. Some of you, and many of you in fact, behave and live like you're a Christian. But the reality is that I have no idea where you stand. I might think you're a Christian, but I might be wrong. I might think that you're not a Christian, but I might be wrong. What ultimately matters where you stand in eternity is what God thinks, and that's what matters. And so where do you stand before God? So if you've been coming here for a while, or even if today's the first day, and you are not entirely sure where you will be in a thousand years, well, make tonight the night when you do become entirely sure. The king of the universe has come in as substitute. It is a wonderful message, but a simple one. He has come as substitute in your place to bear your guilt your shame, your judgment, and your death. He takes your place if you want it. He takes your place if you believe in him as saviour and king. Jesus hangs and you walk. Jesus dies and you live. And so if you've been coming here for a while and you're not entirely sure where you will be, well, let me plead with you. Make tonight the night when you do be sure, become entirely sure where you'll be, where you stand. And so if that is you tonight, let me urge you and plead with you, do speak out. Don't keep it to yourself. Speak out, but also speak to me because we want you to be discipled and mentored. We want you, like our first passage, be reconciled to God. But tonight I suspect that many of you are already Christians. That is, you already understand and believe that Jesus was on the cross for you. He's there so that you don't have to. And so what difference do you think that would make if you already call yourself a Christian, if you already call yourself a disciple of Jesus? Now, we don't know what Barabbas did after this, but you would hope he'd be a changed man after this. You'd hope that he would leave his life of crime. You'd hope that he would even somehow... Try to honour the one who has taken his place. 
And so what about us? Is it okay knowing what Jesus did as Christians and then to think and to live, he hangs, so I walk, but I walk for me. He dies, so I live, but I live for me. Is that okay? You see, it's very, very, very easy for us who call ourselves Christians to live with all that happens in life, to live with all that happens to us in life, to live with all that we do in life, that we forget, that we lose perspective, that we've become inconsistent, unfaithful, and even dishonour the one who went to the cross for us. So how should we be thinking instead? If you call yourself a Christian, how should you be thinking? He hangs, so I walk, but I walk for him. He dies, so I live, but I live for him. And my life is no longer for me, but it is all for Christ. See, over the years of being involved in this church, we've seen so many things that it's been so overwhelmingly encouraging, extremely encouraging and encouraging to us personally. And that's what we've seen amongst many of you, where we can see quite explicitly, evidently, that you do live a life for Christ. Now, at home behind my coffee machine, we've got this little bench, and I keep cards we get, uh, Christmas cards, thank you cards, and I've even got this little trophy from the Talent Quest, but anyway, that's a different story. I've kept all those cards there, not really because I feel sorry for myself and try to make it look like for those who come that I'm pretty popular, but I did have a look at some of those cards today, and so some of you might even be thinking now how sad I am to look over these Christmas cards from 2016. Had to build them up. But having a look at some of these filled my heart with joy that so many of you have been living for Christ and not for yourself. And it shows in what you have written. Let me share some of these with you. This one's written by a brother who felt encouraged by the work of God and desires to know God more. Isn't that living for Christ? This one's written by a sister expressing thanks for being entrusted with the responsibility to teach and train women. Isn't that living for Christ? This, these two I've got, written by two separate couples, writes to say that they've been praying that we would continue to serve God with joy, never losing our first love, and also that, that God might sustain us in ministry. Isn't that living for Christ, a concern for the things of Christ? This one's written by a newly married couple who prays, written that they pray that their marriage will be one that is shaped by the gospel. Isn't that living for Christ? This is the most recent one I've received, written by three ladies, encouraged to see the faithful ministry in this church of how the flock is cared for and reminds me, reminds us, to keep Christ at the very centre always. Isn't that living for Christ? This is another one from our past student ministers. They write to say how they desire to follow Christ and his example. Isn't that living for Christ? 
And this one, written by a sister, who, who wrote this not long after joining our church, writes to say how she feels at home in a church, in a family that loves Christ. And so she said this, I can't wait to grow my reverence and love for Christ along with others. I can't wait to bring more and more non-Christian friends to church. I can't wait to be constantly learning more about Christ's character. I can't wait to love others the way I've been loved and to further God's kingdom. Isn't that living for Christ? I mean, these are just some of the things we've seen over the past few years. Doesn't that warm your heart? That there are Christians who are consistent, faithful, and honour Christ with their lives. Now, of course, I didn't share these cards with you just to make you feel sorry and that you need to write some cards to me as well. That's not the point. But it is really to show that your life and my life is not for ourselves. It is for Christ. He died that we might live and live not for ourselves but for him. And so we can be encouraged by what we see happening amongst us. And of course, it's not just these cards. Over the years, there have been some folks who wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning, 6.30 a.m. in the morning to meet up for discipleship. I mean, that's crazy early hours. I know Chris wakes up earlier, but that's still pretty early. I know a few who each Sunday make it an effort to drive those around them to church. I know some who intentionally invest their lunch times at work to meet up with their colleagues so that they might share Christ. I know some who would even choose to work less, take annual leave that they might invest more in the kingdom. One took leave last year just so that she can serve at Holiday Club. Some take leave to go on beach mission and Christian conferences. There were some, quite a few yesterday, who came to help at our working bee. I know of some who have taken an early retirement that they might invest more in the kingdom of God. And of course, there are some who would even consider uprooting a young family and go to this other side of the world to share Christ in Turkey to Iranians. Aren't these all examples of living for Christ? I mean, if Christ went to the cross for me, then it is not my career. Let's not talk about my career. It is Christ. If Christ went to the cross for me, it is not my studies anymore. It is Christ. If Christ went to the cross for me, it is not my time anymore. It is Christ. If Christ went to the cross for me, it is not my resources anymore. It is Christ. If Christ went to the cross for me, it is not my life anymore. It is Christ. My life is no longer about me. It is all for Christ. And so how tragic it is if there would be any one of us who would live otherwise. To see that even our weekly Christian gathering is the maximum we can give back to God. That should be the bare minimum. To see that Christ rarely comes into our decisions, not just on Sunday, but all every other decisions during the week. To see that Christ not direct my deepest desires in this life. He has nothing to do with it at all. I mean, how tragic would that be if that were any one of us? 
And so let us all remind each other, spur each other, convict each other, challenge each other. He hangs, I walk, but I walk for him. He dies and I live, but I live for him. Let's live that type of life. Let's pray.